Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. Coming up later, business in Mexico responds to the looming presidency of Donald Trump. Despite everything Trump has said, that the Mexicans hope to work with, uh, with the United States rather than to, to have a confrontation with it. And how US healthcare's chaotic finances are turning to a most unusual source for inspiration. Like the U.S. healthcare industry has high and rising spending and high end of life spending, it's not human healthcare, it's pet healthcare. But to start, in recent years, airlines have gone on an unprecedented shopping spree. Airbus and Boeing, the European and American giants that produce all the world's large passenger jetliners, have received orders for nearly 13,000 since 2011. That's equivalent to 40% of the world's existing fleet. But their luck now seems to be running out. To discuss this, I'm joined by The Economist's industry correspondent, Charles Reed. Charles, I think we've had or are about to have sales numbers from both of these giants, Airbus and Boeing. What do they show? Well, they showed that the party is over for them both. Boeing released their figures on Friday. They showed that the amount of orders they've had has fallen. Uh, They missed their target by 80 aircraft. And they are the lowest figure of orders they've had since 2010. Airbus is about to release their figures on Wednesday. They're going to be probably even worse than Boeing's, showing um, their number of orders has fallen about half from last year and probably the lowest since the financial crisis. This is quite bad news for both of them. What's going on? I mean, the world economy... It's not booming, but it's still growing quite strongly. Surely the aviation market must be growing as well. Uh, the aviation market is growing, um, growing at a rate of 5 or 6% a year. But there has been significant softness all over the world. This is in part due to weak economies in some parts of the world. For example, commodity-rich economies, have been, which were producing very large amounts of passenger growth over the last five or six years, have slowed down because of falling commodity prices. There's also fears about terrorism, particularly in Europe. In particular, airlines such as Air France has been hit in particular by the number of terrorist attacks in France. Turkish Airlines has been hit by the number of terrorist attacks in Turkey in recent months. Also, the airlines have been ordering far too many planes. For example, Ryanair is, uh, has bought 50 planes this year, increasing their fleet from 350 to 400. So partly it's a case of a, there's, there's too much extra capacity coming on. The economies in certain parts of the world are weakening. And also there's worries about terrorism, which is making people stay at home rather than go on holiday. And of the two giants, which do you think is the, the more worried, the more concerned by these sales figures? Which one is more worried? Well, I I would say that although Airbus has had a bigger fall in numbers of new orders, they've got a much bigger order book. It will probably take them at current production rates a decade to produce all the planes they've already got 
orders for. Uh, and indeed, Airbus's problem is they can't actually build them fast enough. Last year, they struggled to produce the number of planes that they planned to at the start of the year. This is due to a series of problems with suppliers. They had problems with engines, both with engine made by engine makers Pratt & Whitney and Rolls-Royce. They also had problems with um, cabin fixtures. There was a shortage of seats to be fitted in planes. On one plane, their big A350 aircraft, um, they had a problem with the toilet doors didn't shut properly, and that to cause several months' worth of delays on its own. So Airbus's problem is they can't build them fast enough, and they've got a decade of orders left. Boeing, on the other hand, only has six or seven years. It's running out of orders for planes such as the 747 Jumbo Jet, and also, there's um, the question is, can there, are their orders going to rise in the next few years or not? And that's a big, big question for them to fill the gaps in their order book. I suppose another question would be whether these two companies can maintain this duopoly they've had for so long in this market. I mean, are there new competitors, China, for example, coming into the market? Yes, there are. There are new competitors snapping at their heels. The most prominent of these are the Chinese, and this isn't the, the Chinese aren't keeping Airbus and Boeing executives awake at night yet. But they, they clearly say they will in about 10, 10 15 years' time. Um, China is producing its own narrow body jet, a smaller jet for small haul journeys, to compete with Boeing's seven three seven aircraft and Airbus's. A320 aircraft. This is called the C919. Although they've released a model of it, the model isn't flying yet. And it will probably take until the mid-2020s for the first one to be delivered to an airline. So they're not worried about them yet, but they, they will be worried in about a decade's time. There's also other competitors in the market coming, trying to come into the market at the moment. The Canadians, Bombardier, have produced a competitor to the 737 called the C-Series. Nobody was taking this plane seriously until uh, last year when Delta made big order for these aircraft. Though these aircraft are on the smaller side, they're treated more like large regional jets rather than the, the short, the narrow body jets and the wide body jets that Boeing and Airbus make. There's also other people trying to come into this small narrow body or large regional jet market, including the Japanese and the Russians. But they'll they'll take even even longer, perhaps, than the Chinese to to make a significant dent on this market. Charles Reed, thank you. So, what do you think? In a few years, will we all be flying Chinese? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Next, business in Mexico faces a dilemma as Donald Trump takes the reins. After an election campaign full of threats of punitive tariffs and other trade measures, should it be feisty in reply and consider trade restrictions of its own, or should it just turn the other cheek? I'm joined by The Economist's America's editor, Brooke Unger. Brooke, firstly, could you remind us of the, the tenor of the Trump election campaign and some of the things he's threatened Mexico with? Well, I mean, Trump sort of launched his campaign by, by bashing Mexico. I mean, you sometimes had the impression that he was running as much against Mexico as he was against his, his opponents. I mean, he, you know, very famously started out by, by saying that some Mexicans were rapists and um, by saying that he would build a wall and get Mexico to pay for it. And, and the tone really hasn't changed much, um, you know, since the election. I mean, he's, he's now threatened companies that invest in Mexico with, with, with tariffs. Uh, he's kind of doubled down on his promised to make Mexico pay for this wall. So, uh, you know, it, it's been, you know, anti-Mexican feeling has been very much a hallmark of, of Trumpism. And how have the Mexicans responded so far? 
so far, they've, they've tried very much to placate him. I mean, uh, I forget whether it was August or September. <laughs> in the summer, the Mexican president, uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, uh, invited uh, Trump to Mexico during the election campaign, which provoked a, a kind of a huge public outcry, because as you can imagine, Trump is not very popular south of the border. And uh, the, the finance minister at the time, Luis Videgaray, who, who suggested that the president invite Trump, resigned amid the amid the sort of public outrage. Now, uh, Vidigaray is back as as foreign minister. So, you know, it's an indication that the Mexicans, you know, despite everything Trump has said, that the Mexicans hope to work with uh, with the United States rather than to, to have a confrontation with it. Of course, Mr. Trump has made much of how much Mexico relies on the United States, but presumably the, the same is true the other way around. I mean, what sorts of things could Mexico do to make life difficult for Mr. Trump? Well, I mean, if, if push comes to shove and if, I, I, you know, I, I think the first thing to say is we really don't know, you know, what Trump is actually going to do in office. He's made a, made a lot of threats. He's um, made a lot of promises. Whether he will actually engage in an all-out trade war is is very uncertain. But if he does, for example, impose high tariffs on the car industry in violation of, of NAFTA, you know, Mexico does have options. Um I mean, it, it can, you know, under the, under the rules of NAFTA, with a favorable finding from a panel, from a, a NAFTA panel, it can impose retaliatory tariffs on American products. And it's done this before. I mean, there was a dispute uh, which began in the 90s over the freedom of Mexican lorry drivers to operate in the United States. The United States barred Mexican lorry drivers from, from operating in, in, in the U.S. under pressure, really, from the Teamsters unions. And the Mexicans kind of very cleverly targeted some, nearly 100 American products, kind of many of which were produced in, in congressional districts where those producers had a lot of political clout. And eventually, the Americans backed down. I mean, you can imagine that uh, happening on a larger scale if, if the United States does, does launch some sort of a trade war. And finally for this week, our economics correspondent, Samaya Keynes, reports from the annual meeting of the American Economic Association. Last weekend, more than 13,000 economists gathered in Chicago to discuss their latest research. There, she spoke to Amy Finkelstein, Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and an expert on the economics of healthcare. So healthcare is obviously very, very topical right now, what with Donald Trump coming in and threatening to you know, repeal or replace or whatever to Obamacare. But your work looks at the kind of really digs into the weeds of what's going on in terms of just why is American healthcare spending the way it is. According to the OECD, America spent about $9,500 per person on healthcare, compared to an average across the rest of the OECD of $3,800. So that is a huge difference. Do we know why? We have a lot of ideas, and, and we're working on trying to understand it better. Uh, we have two papers on the program that I think get at some ways at both you know, a standard health economist approach to thinking about this and, and a less standard one. So as you said, the, the sort of key facts that people talk about is that U.S. healthcare spending is extremely high and growing faster than other OECD countries. We also don't seem to get better health outcomes. People often point also to very high end-of-life care. We spend, you know, 5% of the elderly die each year, and we spend about 25 to 30% of our healthcare spending on people in the last 12 months of life. And the 
usual culprits are something about our healthcare institutions, the way we reimburse providers, the way we insure consumers. The, the first paper uh, that we have on the program, which is joint with my co-authors, Laurent Einiv and, and Neil Mahoney, these hospitals, the way the payment structure works, if they keep the patient to a certain number of days, they get an extra $10,000 compared to about $1,000 per day for a typical day. And what we find is that on a typical day, they discharge about 2% of their patients from the hospital. And right after this payday, when they get the $10,000 lump sum payment, they discharge about 9% 9 of patients. So there's a big increase in patient discharges once you hit payday. We tried to just say, can we find some other industry to compare the U.S. healthcare system to, sort of just give us another data point? We're not going to resolve this incredibly important and difficult you know, debate, but just can we gain some new insight? And so we found another industry which, like the U.S. healthcare industry, has high and rising spending and high end of life spending. It's not human healthcare, it's pet healthcare. So what we did is we basically uh, got a bunch of facts about the, the market for pet healthcare in the United States, and that the key thing to know is that pet healthcare spending has also been growing much more rapidly than the, the rest of the economy over the last uh, 20 to 30 years. Providers of pet care, you know, whether you look at employment or establishments, have been growing rapidly. And, and those are all from national data sources. And then the final, the sort of final kicker, which is a more sort of boutique fact or almost just anecdote, because we were only able to get data from one pet hospital. But if you look at that hospital and you look at dogs who, who die from lymphoma, and you compare that you know, with all the appropriate caveats to data on people who die from lymphoma from, from Medicare records, you see that in both of them, healthcare spending you know, peaks in the last couple months of life. It does make you think that there may be something about the nature of the decision itself. It's emotional. Uh, you're being advised by experts. You don't fully understand exactly the trade-offs, and you have to make a decision about how much to spend on, a, you know, on an uncertain investment that may or may not prolong your life versus versus not. So what the pet study shows is that, okay, there's something common in, in both pets and humans that is happening. And in the pet system, you don't have, or you have far fewer the kind of incentives and, and kind of institutional features that we think might be responsible for those outcomes in, in people. Exactly. It makes you think, it makes me think that the answer can't all just be our government policy and our insurance design, given what you see going on in, in pet healthcare. Great. Well, thank you very, very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been great. Samir Keynes on a unique approach being taken by the US healthcare sector. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. 